what Europe was intentionally or unintentionally doing was doubling down on fossil fuels, which really seemed like a perverse reaction to the energy crisis they were facing from the Ukraine war. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, there was a brief moment where it seemed possible that this crisis might inspire European governments to turn away from fossil fuels. Russia was a huge supplier of natural gas to many European markets, and with those supplies suddenly cut off, there was an opportunity to replace Russian fossil fuels with clean energy. That did not happen. In fact, just the opposite occurred. According to research by my guest today, Jeff Colgan, European investments in clean energy fell precipitously following Russia's invasion of Ukraine as governments scrambled for fossil fuels. Jeff Colgan is the Richard Holbrook Professor of Political Science at Brown University and co-author of a new report, Letting Europe's Energy Crisis Go to Waste, The Ukraine War's Massive Fossil Fuel Costs Fail to Accelerate Renewables. We kick off discussing the state of Europe's energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and then have an extended conversation about how and why Europe doubled down on fossil fuels during the energy crisis that followed. This is one of my favorite kinds of episodes we do at Global Dispatches, in which we bring interesting academic research to the policy community that congregates around this show. I think you'll find Jeff Colgan's research particularly interesting and useful. As always, please sign up for the Global Dispatches newsletter at globaldispatches.org, and please do support the show through a premium subscription on Apple Podcasts or Patreon. The links are in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Jeff Colgan of Brown University. Can I have you describe the European energy mix and overall trends in European energy and production and consumption in the years 
prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And what was the state of play of Europe's transition to non-fossil fuels back then? So broadly speaking, before, say, the fall of 2021, Europe was significantly dependent on fossil fuels and particularly dependent on natural gas and other fossil fuels from Russia, right? So oil and coal as well, but especially natural gas. And this is in the context of a movement over the last 20 years where Europe has been building its renewables. So there's more solar and wind in Europe today than there was 20 years ago. But fossil fuels are still very much the backbone of certain parts of Europe's energy systems, particularly the heating and industrial uses. That's where fossil fuels and of course, transportation, they remain to be king, whereas electricity is moving more and more to solar and wind and nuclear in France in particular. And so I'm glad you brought up France as one example. How does Germany, you know, Europe's largest economy, how did that look prior to fall of 2021? So Germany made the momentous decision in the wake of the Fukushima disaster in Japan in 2011 to shut down gradually all of its nuclear generating plants over a period of time. In fact, they were just finishing that process up in 2022 when the war broke out. And partly as a result of that shift away from nuclear energy, they had in fact increased their use of fossil fuels, not just coal, but also heavy dependence on natural gas from Russia, right? And so they decided to build these pipelines called Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 from Russia that would come directly into Germany. And Nord Stream 2 was not yet actively online. It was just about to come online when the war broke out. And of course, history took a sharp turn after that point. It's just worth emphasizing just how all in Germany was under the previous Merkel government, at least in investing in Nord Stream 2 and tying itself even more deeply to Russian fossil fuels ahead of the war. Right. So natural gas was the most important energy source in Europe before the war, and 40% of Europe's overall natural gas consumption was coming from Russian imports. And when I say Europe, I don't just mean the EU, I'm also including the United Kingdom. So this is a really important source for all of Europe is Russia's natural gas. And Germany, as you point out, was above that average, right? So it was something like a little bit above 50% of its natural gas was coming from Russia. So you mentioned an inflection point being the fall of 2021, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine didn't happen until February 2022. So what was it that began in the fall of 2021 that began to shift this dynamic? There's some ambiguity about exactly when this inflection point starts, but somewhere between, say, August and October of 2021, Russia's energy exports to Europe begin to fall quite significantly. And they're not breaking any contracts at this point, but what they're doing is using all of their discretionary market ability to limit their own exports to Europe. And so that's driving prices of many energy types, but especially natural gas, those prices are rising very significantly. And you know, 
up until that point, natural gas had been, you know, there's always a little bit of volatility, but the prices had been fairly steady for about a decade. And suddenly, in the fall of 2021, the prices were doubling and even tripling for natural gas generally. And before the war, there was, I think, some confusion and conversation about, well, what's really going on and why is Russia doing this? And of course, there was technical matters raised and market design, etc. But later, after the invasion, it's hard not to look back on that retrospectively and see that as an intentional design by Gazprom and the Kremlin to restrict Russian natural gas exports to Europe. A prelude to what would be coming, so to speak. Exactly. And the price impact of that really was a prelude because double and triple was certainly very concerning for energy consumers in the fall of 2021. But that was just, you know, a warning sign of what was to come because in 2022, prices for natural gas went to about 10 times their historic average. So there was really a sharp increase. And this had massive consequences for residential energy prices in terms of people heating their homes, and also for many industries that rely on fossil fuels for industrial purposes, whether that's petrochemicals or for heating processes to make aluminum and glass and a million other substances that we use in everyday life. So as you noted, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy prices just shot up astronomically 10 times in some cases as they were pre-war, according to what you just said. So how did European policymakers respond to these energy price shocks? So even in kind of March and April of 2022, just in the weeks following the invasion of Ukraine, it was understood immediately that one of the real concerns was that Russia would try to turn off all the taps for its energy exports to Europe, and that this would be a problem not so much immediately, but in the winter of 2023, right? So last winter. And that was the concern, and European policymakers gradually put together something called Repower EU, which was their sort of flagship effort to reduce their dependence on Russian natural gas and Russian energy imports generally. And happily, that policy has been broadly successful, although it's worth pointing out, right? So last winter, Europe did not face a severe energy crisis, as some feared that it would. But that was largely because Europe got lucky with the weather, right? That there was a very mild winter, which meant that the demand for natural gas in Europe was much lower than typical, and they didn't face shortages the way that we were worried they might. But broadly speaking, your research suggests that European energy policies in this time was to shore up supplies of fossil fuels and to provide subsidies to industries to enable their continued fossil fuel consumption so as to avoid the huge price shocks and give Europe a softer landing in the face of these energy price hikes that stem from Russia's invasion, correct? 
That's exactly right. And politicians understand that energy prices are an electoral issue. And so, understandably, to a certain extent, the major concern for policymakers was try to reduce the price impact of major natural gas price increases or energy price increases generally to residents, who are, of course, voters, and to industries. And while that's sort of understandable from an electoral politics perspective, what that ultimately led to were policies like price caps on natural gas or subsidies for fossil fuels, and at the same time, some windfall taxes applied to the electrical generating sector, including wind and solar. So what that means is that Perversely, wind and solar generators were paying higher taxes while subsidies were going to fossil fuels. And so, of course, from an environmental perspective and from an energy security perspective, what Europe was intentionally or unintentionally doing was doubling down on fossil fuels, which really seemed like a perverse reaction to the energy crisis they were facing from the Ukraine war. And can you just kind of take us through some of the numbers that your study revealed about the extent to which European policymakers opted to double down on fossil fuels at the expense of investing in renewables? Like when faced with this crisis, Europe turned not to deeper investments in renewables, but rather to subsidizing fossil fuels to soften the blow for European populations, which is what your research revealed. So what quantitatively did that look like? These were huge costs, right? And so we estimate overall that the cost of Europe's energy crisis, and I should be more specific, it's really a fossil fuel crisis, not an energy crisis, right? But the fossil fuel costs of what's happened since the Ukraine war is over a trillion euros. And we sort of came to that number by evaluating two major components. One was the extra costs of high-priced fossil fuels during this time, which was 643 billion euros above and beyond what they normally would have paid for regular consumption at sort of typical prices, non-war prices. So 643 billion from high-priced fuel, additional to what they would normally pay. And then separately, the second component was 908 billion euros in government spending that was energy-related, linked to responding to this significant energy crisis. And so that included things like the cost of capping the natural gas prices or doing corporate bailouts to various utilities that were suddenly financially inviable because of the price spikes or paying for new infrastructure like LNG terminals so that Germany and Belgium and other countries could go to Qatar or the United States or other LNG providers and say, we need LNG desperately. And so we're going to build new infrastructure so that we can have that LNG in the short term. But part and parcel of that reaction was long-term contracts where they're doubling down on fossil fuels, you know, not just in the immediate short-term crisis, but choosing not to invest as much as they could in clean energy. And just to give 
you know, one more point on that is in terms of numbers. An independent think tank called Ember made an estimate of, you know, what would it really cost for Europe to essentially decarbonize most of its energy system, right? So not just electricity, but also industry and transportation, et cetera, moving towards a much cleaner energy system. And they expect that the cost was about 1.6 trillion by 2035. And so we're talking a very substantial amount of that investment cost for clean energy could have been paid for by some of the euros that are being put for you know fossil fuel subsidies in the short term. And so that's a really poignant choice that unfortunately Europe found itself because of previous decisions prior to the war that it had this kind of short-term problem where it felt like okay we need to now pay a huge amount of money over a trillion euros to deal with this energy crisis but they're not avoiding or helping to shield themselves from the next energy crisis that may come in future years. I do understand, though, like the European policymakers kind of decision-making calculus, like from a Russian perspective, you know, their goal was to drive up energy prices because, as you said earlier, you know, energy costs are a voting issue everywhere around the world, including in Europe. And Russia sought to drive a wedge in the Western alliance that was supporting Ukraine and thought it could potentially do so through manipulating energy markets, potentially to give rise to right-wing populism and right-wing populist parties that could erode that unified Western response. So I do understand the sort of European political trade-offs that were made in terms of wanting to immediately prevent a sharp increase in the price of fuel versus making more long-term investments in renewables. Right. Like I, I sort of understand where they're coming from. Right. But two caveats on that, because I think you're hitting on exactly the right issue, but there's two things we should think about this. One is, yes, it might've made a lot of sense to pay what needs to be paid in the sort of three to five year time horizon to take care of the immediate crisis. But that's very different from locking the economy into a fossil fuel future that extends 15, 20, and more years into the future. And that's unfortunately what we've seen in a lot of different cases. So there's a big difference in terms of the time horizon, right? And the other thing that I would just point out is that you know, while solar has done very well, and we've seen a lot of growth in solar in Europe, wind energy has not done very well. And so you would think, you know, if ever there was going to be a time to sort of double down on renewables, it would be following the invasion of Ukraine. But in fact, in 2022, investment in wind was down 40% compared to 2021 right? Down 40%, right? This was the moment for wind to really take off. But in fact, that's not what we've seen. And, you know, partly this is not just policy factors. There's also things like rising interest rates that have made the economics of wind harder. But there have been some policy mistakes that have made wind much less profitable. And so then you have some of the major companies like Vestas or Siemens that are wind manufacturers in Europe 
that are reporting major losses in 2022 instead of profits. And you're seeing that the whole wind energy sector really struggle in part because of permitting issues, regulatory issues, and just not enough commitment to really drive the clean energy transition forward at an accelerated pace, given the energy security needs that Europe now faces in the wake of this threat from Russia. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Your report does make, I think, a compelling and quantitative case that the energy crisis of last year in Europe was very much a crisis wasted and an opportunity squandered when it came to accelerating the energy transition in Europe. So like what could have been done? What was like a discrete policy that European policymakers like avoided taking or did not take to now our detriment in terms of accelerating that energy transition? Yeah. So for instance, in the United Kingdom, they have what's been called sort of a de facto ban on shore wind. So it is essentially impossible for wind producers to build in the United Kingdom. That's a policy that can and should have been reversed on February 25th, 2022, the day after Russia invades Ukraine, right? That the whole thinking around that should have changed. Instead, what we've seen is the United Kingdom announcing that they are going to max out the oil and gas production from the North Sea, right? So the whole approach of the choice between renewables versus oil and gas, it's characterized by this kind of short-term thinking and not paying enough attention to the energy security advantages of having wind and solar where the basic fuel of wind and solar is, of course, wind and sunshine. And that's not something that geopolitics can affect, right? So a foreign dictator can't invade and cause the price of wind or sun to go up. And that's a real advantage that at the moment isn't being baked into some of the wind investment or wind policy or energy policy decisions that governments take, right? We, we talk about levelized costs of energy, where we compare the costs of renewables versus fossil fuels versus coal. And again, you know, when we talk about specific policies that could have changed, one thing that should be changed is how we capture the energy security advantage of types of energy like wind and solar that are not subject to market risk for their fuels. Yeah, I like you know, geopolitical crises that impact the cost of oil and fossil fuels are like unfortunately like a feature of yes. international relations and it happens over and over again the most recent one of course is Russia's invasion of Ukraine but there are many others over the course of the decades yet this is not typically factored into long-term thinking around energy transitions exactly right and Part of the reason we wrote the report was to call attention to that fact and to say, hey, it's time for us to do better analysis on this and recognize that the reason to do wind and solar, it's not just about saving the environment, it's also for energy security. So 
You said earlier that you know one of the responses to the energy crisis of, of last year was a situation in which European governments made long-term investments in, say, liquid natural gas. Is there anything that could be done to like reverse those or undo those investments? Or going forward, what are some of the kind of more concrete or realistic policy options that are available to European policymakers to both ensure that short-term energy security that could be impacted by uh, another crisis and also make those kind of longer-term investments in renewables? Yeah, so there are some things that Europe can do with in terms of its taxonomy of sustainable investing and some sort of really wonky things that Europe can do to try to boost the case for wind and solar. But just stepping back from that just for a moment, I mean, I think the goal should be to try to set kind of retirement time horizon for fossil fuel assets, right? To try to say, yes, we understand that this has been a crisis and that these things are hard to solve in the very short term. But, you know, when we're looking at committing to new natural gas infrastructure, pipelines, etc., the expectation should be built in that this is going to be three to five to maybe seven years of usage. And then that infrastructure needs to either be retired or to transition to something like hydrogen pipelines, et cetera. You know, hydrogen pipelines is one of the things that many people are talking about as sort of the wave of the future and how that infrastructure will transition. But of course, there's big questions around the economics of hydrogen that nobody really has the answers to yet. And so one way or another, there needs to be more clarity on how that transition away from oil and natural gas pipelines will happen and to make sure that the economics of it are not such that it's the taxpayers that take all the risks associated with that infrastructure private sector has to be able to price that in as well. Jeff, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark, for having me on. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.